0: Luke 11 verses 1 through 13. This is the New King James Version. Now it came to pass as he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, that one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. And he said to them, Which of you shall have a friend and go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves? For a friend of mine has come to me on his journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within and say, Do not trouble me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot arise and give you and give to you. I say to you, though he will not rise and give to him because he is his friend. Yet because of his persistence, he will rise and give him as many as he needs. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. If a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? The mystery of the incarnation, God the Son, became flesh. He was truly man and truly God. And I believe that In his sinless nature, even as a child, Jesus prayed more fervently and earnestly than any of us have ever done. It must have been a marvel to behold Jesus wrestling in prayer as his intimate disciples saw him uh, go off to pray. There were times, I'm sure, that they were in his presence when they were praying aloud together. But to watch him wrestling like Jacob of old, foreshadowing Jesus himself, Hanging firmly onto the promises, believing and trusting in his father. Born to Mary and Joseph, as a child he matured into adulthood. What was it like for Jesus? We know he, he enjoyed life. He was sinless and under the favor of his father. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. But there's a psalm that has given insight that I think it's worth thinking about. In Psalm 88, the psalmist is reflecting upon God's salvation in the midst of terrors. The sons of Korah are credited with this psalm. But near the end it says, Lord, why have you, why do you cast off my soul? Why do you hide your face from me? I have been afflicted and ready to, to die from my youth. I suffer your terrors. I am distraught. Your fierce wrath has gone over me. Your terrors have cut me off. They came around me all day long like water. They engulfed me together. Loved one and friend, you have put a far far from me, and my acquaintances into darkness. I wonder if, as a boy, Jesus experienced those night terrors that sometimes children face. Did he awaken at night? Did Mary and Joseph comfort him? The Hebrew word here for youth is literally boyhood. This is the way our Psalter renders that portion. O Lord, why cast my soul away from you? Why do you keep your face hid from my view? From youth or boyhood, I've been distressed, about to die. Your terrors I have borne. Distraught was I. Your burning anger over me has passed. Your terrors all have cut me off at last. All day like floods, your terrors round me surged. They cover me. By them I've been submerged. By you I am of all my friends bereft, and those who loved me are in darkness left. Of course, this is consummated at the cross when his closest disciples had deserted him. As a man, he experienced these things genuinely. And so as he often prayed with this sense of sorrow and grief and terror, he prayed in faith. Trusting his father. In Hebrews chapter 5 verses 7 and follow, following we, give this, we get this picture of him praying. In the days of his flesh when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And was heard by his godly fear because of his godly fear though he was a son yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. We know that he prayed and sweat, as it were, great drops of blood in Gethsemane. But there were times when he prayed with light, loud crying and tears all throughout his life. It wasn't just in Gethsemane and on the cross when he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was all throughout his lifetime. Prayer is a serious and solemn business. And Jesus experienced the depths of of. Anguish in prayer. Thomas Goodwin penned a famous treatise that has recently been republished, The Heart of Jesus in Heaven for Sinners on Earth. Even in heaven, he looks down upon us and yearns for us and cares deeply, is deeply moved by the sight of your troubles and mine. He ever lives to intercede. He's praying like the high priest of old with our names on his palms and on his shoulders, on his chest, on his heart. He knows you and he cares about you. He prays for us and for our growth in grace. Even Jesus experienced growth physically and spiritually It's essential for our growth in grace and for our perseverance in this pilgrimage that we learn how to wrestle and agonize in prayer. Paul speaks in Colossians about agonizing in prayer for his his, uh, fellow believers. Prayer is essential for our life together as a congregation. If we're going to live together and love each other appropriately, and if we're going to be winsome and effective in our outreach and evangelism, then we must be men and women and children of prayer. Like the disciples, we need to ask Jesus to teach us to pray. How wonderful it must have been for these disciples to have been with Jesus during these three years together to witness him praying, to be inspired, to want to pray like he did. How could they have fallen asleep in the garden? Well, we're told that they were overwhelmed with grief and sorrow and they couldn't even watch for an hour in companionship with Jesus as as their beloved master was wrestling in an agony of soul, realizing their need and moved by his fervency and agony, They asked Him, Lord, teach us to pray. We don't know when this occasion was, when uh, in this uh, moment when they asked Him, but it could have been any time during those three years. And like a good rabbi, Jesus gave them a pattern for prayer, a model to follow, a prayer to memorize and recite together as we do in our worship services. Recite just means to call to mind, to remember, and to pray these things. In, in Luke 11, Jesus says, when you pray, say. I think he's saying, it's good to recite this prayer. It's good to not mindlessly recite it, but to thoughtfully and prayerfully, in unison, pray this together as God's people. In the Matthew, Sermon on the Mount version, he says, in this manner Pray. We can use it as a guide. Here he tells us, when we pray, we ought to be uh, saturated with this Lord's Prayer. Jesus approves of congregations reciting the prayer, but he also wants us to use this as a guide, a catalyst in prayer. We need to reflect on these priorities in prayer, using these main headings as a template. We begin by praying, Our Father in heaven. We're a family. We have been adopted into God's family. He's our Father. He's our Father in heaven. I'll just read the prayer and reflect briefly on these petitions. This won't be an exhaustive exposition of the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. On earth as it is in heaven, give us day by day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Perhaps you were taught to pray by memorizing a pattern prayer. And John had, dis- had taught his disciples. These disciples wanted their rabbi to give them a template, a guide, an inspiration for their prayer. When we pray this, we remind ourselves that we together are brothers and sisters in Christ. We're a family. And we pray that our love might abound more and more in knowledge and all discernment so that we can live together in harmony and peace as a family. Think of it. In heaven, God's name is hallowed. The angels cry, holy, holy, holy. There is no one, no being in heaven, not even the spirits of just men made perfect who dishonors God's name, takes it, takes it in vain. His kingdom is unchallenged. The demonic rebels have been cast out of his kingdom and his will is done. The angels do his bidding like a flame of fire. Some have suggested like lightning. Children, Gabriel didn't say to the Lord, shuffling his feet and making excuses, why can't Michael do it? Can't you send him to Mary for the announcement of the Savior's birth? No, he was off like lightning, instant in obedience. In Hebrews, we read that God makes his angels messengers or winds like flashes of fire and of the angels he says who makes his angels he says who makes his angel spirits and his ministers a flame of fire children be like the angels obey god and your parents like michael and gabriel do it cheerfully and instantly be off like the wind ask the lord to help you be like the angels He says, go on and pray for our daily bread. And, of course, we're praying for physical nourishment. We need our daily nourishment for our bodies. But I believe here that Jesus is concerned more about our spiritual nourishment. In witnessing to the woman at the well, that Samaritan woman, he found himself satisfied to be there with her even though he was weary and hungry the disciples had gone off to get food they came back and said Rabbi eat and Jesus said to them I have food to eat of which you, you do not know therefore the disciples said to one another has anyone brought him anything to eat Jesus said to them my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his works in another place Jesus speaks about working where his father's working. I used to be in the fields with my father on the farm, and it was a great joy to be working with my father. And I pray of my heavenly father, Lord, let me be working where you're working. Give me those appointments with the woman at the well, with that person who is lost and needing direction. I don't have a woman at the well story, but I have a bassoonist on the airplane story. One time I boarded the airplane in Pittsburgh to fly to Kansas after a synod meeting, and a young lady who had just graduated from uh, a university brought her $18,000 bassoon onto the plane and put it on the shelf above. She didn't trust the men to put it on the cargo. But she was a talkative person, and we conversed throughout that trip, and I felt myself, like Jesus, nourished on food that the Father had given me. I shared the gospel with her. Thomas Watson, in his fine commentary on the Lord's Prayer, said, If we are to pray for temporal things, how much more for spiritual? If we are to pray for bread, how much more for the bread of life? If for oil, how much more for the oil of gladness? If to have our hunger satisfied... Much more should we pray to have our souls saved. He died at the age of sixty six on his knees. In in feeding the five thousand, Jesus said to them, You've come because I gave you loaves to fill your stomach. Don't labor for the bread that perishes, labor for the bread that endures to eternal life, he said. Robert Murray McShane, a young Scottish preacher, said, What a man is on his knees in prayer, that's what he is. Nothing more and nothing less. Again, I reiterate what Jesus said to the crowds. You seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, life which the Son of Man will give you, Because the Father has set his seal upon him. Jesus is faithful to give you what you need for the nourishment of your souls. Jesus is the manna come down from heaven. He is the bread of life. He sustains us spiritually on this wearisome journey heavenward. I sometimes wonder if there's even a hint here of, of the battlefield. My enemies have eaten my flesh as bread, says the psalmist. We are in a spiritual warfare and we are more than conquerors. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He sustains me with victory over temptations on the battlefield of spiritual warfare. When we come to the petition about forgiveness, we're reminded that God has forgiven us and given us in sovereign grace, a heart ready to forgive others. By God's saving grace, our hearts are melted or softened and He has given us forgiving spirits. He has given us grace to forgive others who have wronged us. And on that basis, we plead with God the Father to forgive us too for the times we transgress daily, to release us from our debts. We are debtors and we cannot pay We could never repay it in all eternity. We must remember as God's people that we are in need of forgiveness every day. God has forgiven us and given us regenerate hearts that delight in being forgiving toward others. Love covers a multitude of sins. The sixth petition, lead us not into temptation but deliver us from the evil one. We know that God is governing all things and all creatures in his good providence. And everything in our lives is ordered and orchestrated by God for our good and his glory. And we pray to God, Lord, keep me from temptation. I don't want to go down that dark alley. Don't lead me that direction. Deliver me from the evil one. He's like a roaring lion prowling about seeking whom he made his devour. He knows your weaknesses and he will exploit those weaknesses. In a sudden temptation, we can fall like David in his sin with Bathsheba. Lord, keep us and deliver us. These are the essentials of prayer. The Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail and when you have returned to me strengthen your brethren. If Jesus prayed for Peter. He's praying for you. He ever lives to intercede for you. He knows you by name. He knows where you are and what you're facing and how overwhelmed you are and discouraged you are at times. The heart of Jesus in heaven for sinners on earth is a, is a wonderful thing to contemplate. If Jesus needed to pray, if the twelve needed to pray, who are we to think that we can get by without praying on a daily basis in a disciplined manner, praying for deliverance from the one who who would ruin us? Jesus gives us a pattern for prayer here. We need a vision of heaven's glory and kingdom priorities. We need to see things the way Jesus sees them and get our priorities in order for spiritual triumph over evil, but he also teaches us here persistence in prayer. In verses 5 through 10, he illustrates the importance of persistence in prayer. Weary travelers at midnight come, and you're unprepared to feed them. The stores are closed. Every time I come to preach on this text, I feel like that man pounding on heaven's door because I have weary pilgrims to feed. You're here and I have nothing to give you. I have no feast prepared. And so I go knocking on heaven's door. I must go to my friend at midnight, the 11th hour, begging for help. I need bread heaven-sent bread to nourish your souls. Jesus illustrates this with the uh, quaint one-room home in which these folks lived. Mom and dad have just gotten the little ones to sleep in bed with them, and they want a nice, restful sleep. And along comes a neighbor knocking on the door, and the master says, finally gotten the children to bed, be quiet, go away. But he persists. And Jesus said, even though he's his friend, he won't rise and give him bread. Yet because of his persistence, he will give him as he needs. Now God's not reluctant to give us what we need. He's ready to answer our prayers. But he wants us to always pray and never lose heart. He wants us to be persistent in prayer. He says here, ask and you will receive. I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds and to him who knocks it will be opened. I'm not a great grammatical scholar but uh, when I was in seminary they taught me the present continuous tense of verbs and I've often wondered, is Jesus saying here, just keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking, be persistent. In that passage in Jeremiah that we looked at this morning, briefly, where Jeremiah sends a letter to the exiles. He says, for thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me, and I will listen to you, and you will seek me and find me. When you search for me with all your heart, I will be found by you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, says the Lord, and I will bring you to the place from which I cause you to be carried away captive. Nehemiah claimed that promise. He knew it was 70 years and it was time to go back, and he prayed fervently for the Lord. He sought the Lord. Be persistent in prayer. Former pastor of ours during seminary days, Gordon Ketty has published a book on the prayers of the Bible. Just today... In today's devotional, we read from Luke 18. He says, Jesus' application of this story to prayer is basically this. If a bad judge will listen to a complaining woman, how much more will God avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him? If a widow can persist with a lazy, uncaring judge in an unjust world, Will you, Christian, not pray earnestly with believing perseverance for his grace in this world and the next? Now, of course, God's not a a lazy, wicked judge. God is righteous, and God is ready and eager to give you what you need. But he wants you to pray and to learn obedience through, persevering in prayer, praying through the long nights of great trial and trouble in your life, One of the psalms that gives me comfort is why must I grieve all the evil accomplished by the evil one. Kitty goes on to say it's a long way to Australia, but you will not get off the plane before you arrive simply because you can't wait that long, will you? We are this living spiritual house of worship that he is building and he longs to meet with us here in this assembly to comfort and encourage us. His glorious presence is not physically visible like the Shekinah glory of, God, of old, but we see the glory of God in the face of Christ, and it is reflected in the glory and joy of your faces. Your faces tell the tale. Your testimony to the grace of God in your life cheers the Spirit of the weary pilgrim. I can't nourish your souls. I'm just a beggar. And I desire for you to feast on the word of God at the Lord's table, for you to be joyful, radiant, bold witnesses for Christ, to experience, even in the midst midst of persecution, as Peter said, joy inexpressible, full of glory. So Jesus here not only gives us a pattern for prayer, Teaches us persist- persistence in prayer, but he gives us a promised answer to prayer. He teaches us to claim his promised Holy Spirit in prayer. For what are we to pray for preeminently when we pray as Christ's disciples? What is his promised answer to prayer? It's the Holy Spirit, essentially. He says, If you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, How much more will your Heavenly Father give you the Holy Spirit? Now, of course, Jesus is praying. Jesus is commissioning his disciples to pray for the, the initial Pentecost. And we're not called to pray for another Pentecost in that sense. The Holy Spirit has been given but we pray for our pastors and our elders and our deacons as they lead us, that they might be filled with the Spirit. They too are spiritual beggars. We need to pray for the Holy Spirit to anoint them, to speak as it were the oracles of God, to speak in demonstrations of the Spirit and power, to speak with frankness and boldness. In college, I heard John Gerster once expound on 1 Thessalonians Chapter 1, verses 2 through 5. We give thanks always for you all, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. Gerstner went on to say, the indication that you are elect and belong to God is in the preaching of the word of God with boldness and authority. For our gospel, says Paul, did not come to you in word only, but also in power And in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. When a preacher speaks with confidence and anointing with clarity in the power of the Holy Spirit, it is God's seal on that congregation that they are his precious elect people, his precious possession. In the illustration that Jesus gives, he says, if you have a a child that's hungry for a snack, you don't trick them and tease them with something harmful and poisonous. You don't hand them a, a loaf-shaped stone and say, Here, satisfy your with that hunger with that. You don't give them a slithering snake when they're asking for a fish. And I've read somewhere long ago that there's a scorpion in the Middle East that can roll up into a ball like an egg and You don't take a scorpion like that that looks like an egg and give it to your child. If you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Heavenly Father give you the Holy Spirit to nourish your soul, to empower you to be joyful, bold witnesses for Christ? Perhaps you were there at uh, the Springs Church when Dr. Richard, Richard Gaffin spoke. His book, Perspectives on Pentecost, was a great help to me in my youth as uh, I struggled to understand this charismatic movement that was all around me. My friends were speaking in tongues and experiencing uh, things that I had never experienced. And in conversations with him, he reminded me just a few years ago, we're not praying for another Pentecost. These disciples were to pray in preparation for that first Pentecost. This was their great prayer mission as they waited to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And look at the transformation. They're cowardly. They've run away. They're hiding behind closed doors. They're praying and waiting to be clothed with power. And when Pentecost comes and they are baptized with the Spirit, they are transformed into bold witnesses for Christ, ready to suffer affliction for His sake. Look at the amazing transformation recorded in the bold and joyful, confident witnesses. When they prayed with one accord in faith, God sent the Holy Spirit. They sought him and he was found at Pentecost once and for all. We're not to pray for another Pentecost. I like the way Abraham Kuyper put it. The waterworks have been laid in for the city and the water has been turned on. We need only to access that. But as Dr. Gaffin says, we meet and pray and we sing psalms together in order, in order what? to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We need to be filled daily again and again. We need to drink from these living waters. Some have used the balloon illustration. A balloon may have lost its air and needs to be filled up again. The church, the congregation, at any given moment in history, is more or less filled with the Spirit. In times of revival, God's people understand the glory of God and and are filled with this love and desire to honor Him and to love their brothers and sisters. At other times, we're cold and lukewarm in our love. It's important to stay hydrated in this climate in Colorado. We must keep drinking from The well of living water. Jesus says to the woman at the well, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. In John 7, at the conclusion of the Feast of Tabernacles and the water-pouring ceremony, Jesus stands up And says to the crowd, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. John records, But this he spoke concerning the Holy Spirit, whom these believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. And so, as Paul says in Ephesians 5, In Colossians 3, we sing the Psalms to drink deeply and to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Jesus says and wants us to pray for the Holy Spirit, to be filled, to be wise and discerning for life. He wants us to be empowered to speak confidently and boldly in our day-to-day witnessing as God works in the lives of his elect, bringing them to salvation. Don't you long to be a faithful witness to the lost soul along the way, to that woman at the well, to that bassoonist on the airplane, that stranger on a bus, to a friend or neighbor or family member. As God is working, we work alongside our Father in heaven. C. John Miller was a, a well-known theologian, professor at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia, and a missionary to Uganda, I have been so blessed by his little book called Evangelism and Your Church. He came to Geneva College when I was there as a student in the 70s. It was a weekend conference on evangelism, and I don't remember anything he said. What I do remember is gathering together in a circle and sitting beside this man who had learned how to pray like a beggar, like a shameless beggar. Asking God for the Holy Spirit to give him boldness and confidence. In his little book, he says, "There's something um, that God provides through prayer. It is our door to, it, it is our door of access to the Heavenly Father, through which." As his adopted sons and daughters, we receive his grace to do his work. And again, it is the Holy Spirit who brings our prayers to the Father. The coming of the Holy Spirit and the believer's consequent new access and power in prayer are what make the difference between the Old Testament church and the New Testament church. Under the Old Covenant, God's people were notorious for not stirring themselves up to pray. But Christ's resurrection and ascension ushered in a new age when his people were indwelt by the spirit of prayer who warms our hearts to approach the Father and who makes intercession for us so that our prayers may be heard. In short, what the church of Jerusalem had discovered was that the work of the gospel required the gift of the Spirit's filling sought in fervent prayer. Without this heavenly anointing, there is only an earthly work. Our words have no power unless the Spirit speaks through us. And they have no effect unless the Spirit applies them to men's hearts. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones was also influential in my life through the years when I was at seminary, I read his lectures on preaching and preachers and was first stirred to understand that if I'm going to preach in demonstrations of the Spirit and, and of power, I need a filling of the Holy Spirit. I need, as what Jones would say, to be baptized anew with the Spirit, to be transformed, to be given a joy unspeakable, full of glory. In his series of sermons published in a book called Joy Unspeakable, he tells the story of a common carpenter, David Morgan. And he says that he went to hear a preacher one night, and it was, he was deeply moved by this good and godly man. He went to bed that night, David Morgan. And awakened the next morning a lion for the Lord. And he preached for two years. And God blessed his preaching ministry and brought many to Christ. And then one night he went to bed, this lion for the Lord, and he awakened David Morgan again. Ordinary David Morgan. One night I went to bed filled with this power that had accompanied accompanied me for two years. I woke up the next morning and found that I was David Morgan once more, and he continued, says Lloyd Jones, to be David Morgan until he died about some 15 years or so later. God is sovereign in giving us the Holy Spirit, in anointing us, in setting us free to speak with clarity and directness to people about their eternal salvation. It's the Holy Spirit who enables us to lead sinners to faith in Christ. You can be a witness for Christ. You can lead sinners to faith in Christ. You can say, come and see what Jesus has done in my life and in the life of our congregation. You can be, as Paul says in Timothy, sanctified and useful for the Master, prepared for every good work. We long for effective witness and ministry. And we pray that God would give us an anointing as we respond this evening let's turn to Psalm 51 B and we'll sing this psalm standing following the pastoral prayer let's please stand for prayer and remain standing to sing Psalm 51 B Lord like your disciples that intimate circle of friends that were with you for those three and a half years. We ask you, Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray like Jacob wrestling through the night, like Jesus agonizing, sweating, as it were, great drops of blood. Teach us to pray even in the midst of our busy lives as we lift up our hearts to you, knowing that you hear us and you ever live to intercede for us. Please, revive us, O oh Lord, in the midst of the years. Rend the heavens and come down. Awaken us and the world around us to the reality of, our ter- of the eternal consequences of sin and rebellion. Lord, help us soften our hearts To weep for those who are lost. To plead with them. To come to Christ. And to be reconciled with God. In Jesus name we pray. Amen.